Good morning. Have you ever been accused of being overly honest? I have. Um, oftentimes, I have to use my wife Dana as a um, as a mirror to kind of tell me, you know, I think you said too much. People like what you have to say. You should just probably say a little less of it. Um, some of you who know me might agree with that. Um, I'm obviously not Kelly. Uh, I think Kelly's on a hunting trip. Um, I don't preach like Kelly. I'm obviously much better looking than Kelly. Probably not quite as humble as Kelly. Um, but I've, I've, I've really struggled with preaching throughout my uh, life. Um, I went to Bible school. I was trained, formally trained to preach, formally trained to share the gospel. But it, it is something that, for the most part, if I'm being honest, I say I don't enjoy. Um, and it's not because I think preaching is bad or not helpful. It's because when I first started working at a church, I found it to be so stressful. Um, and it's not about public speaking. I'm fine public speaking. I'm fine presenting. It was because every church is very specific. And when you preach, you're preaching to an audience. And you have to consider, what kind of audience is this? Is this a very traditional audience? Um, is this a progressive thinking audience? Um, what's their history? What have they been through? Because what the last thing you want to do as a preacher is to get up here and offend the entire group of people you're trying to share truth with, right? That's a really good way to uh, get them to not listen to you. And in fact, probably do the opposite. So it's kind of counterintuitive, and I've always found this to be really, really stressful. However, I don't work for a church anymore. So I have a little bit of freedom to say what I want. Somewhere in the crowd, my wife is cringing. One thing that I found is oftentimes sermons, and this is not specific to our church, but in Christianity... They can be a way of um, inflating ourselves, right? We like to hear what we like to hear. Sometimes we want to be, we come to church to be reinforced in what we already believe, as opposed to hearing something challenging and hard that might make us feel bad. Can I see a show of hands? Who likes to come to church to feel bad? Right. Um, I always remembered this growing up. My mom, I have a lot of motherly wisdom. Um, I rarely mention my mom in a sermon, and it's like a really positive lesson I learned. It's, it's usually something really bizarre and wacky, and if you've ever met my mother, you know she, those are two great words to describe her, bizarre and wacky. Um, but we would always have people come to our door, and they would be asking, hey, uh, can you give uh, some money for this hurricane relief fund? I grew up in Texas, so... You know, this was a big thing for people who were living in Houston or Galveston or that area. And my mom would always say the exact same thing to this person. It didn't matter what it was about. It didn't matter if it was a Christian group. She'd always say the exact same thing. No, I give to my church. Which always made me feel really weird because it's it's a good cause. But she'd always say, no, I give to my church. And she would say it proud, right? Like, You should understand this and move on. And this poor little kid who's trying to raise money for earthquake relief or whatever leaves disappointed. And I always found that strange because my mom always had this assumption, 
I give money into this basket or this plate or in our case, these bags, and all this suffering is being relieved. And her conscience was totally clear of that. Now, I think there was a time where a lot of us probably felt this way, but that's not how younger generations think anymore. It's actually really not how our generation thinks anymore because we have more access and knowledge of suffering than ever before. How many Sundays do we come in and we learn about a new shooting? Or a new disaster? Maybe a serial killer? Um, That happened just here recently in Alberta. There's so much suffering in the world and we realize it doesn't really matter how much money we put in a basket. Suffering just doesn't go away magically. Right? Um... What, we wanna, what I want to talk about today is suffering in our context with the cross. Um, a lot of times with lessons, like we'll spend a great deal of time defining it. I assume everyone here, we, we have some understanding of what suffering is. Um, there is some differences between pain and suffering and all of that, but that's not exactly what I want to get into today. But I want to take a look at how do we deal with suffering in the church? Um, how do we as a church deal with suffering in the world And what role do we have in that? Because sometimes the hardest thing in the world is to look in the mirror and say, maybe there are things that we do or things that we've done that have increased suffering. And I know that's a big statement. But again, you're not paying me, so I can say what I want. A lighter note. How many of you have ever tried on a shirt and it didn't fit very well anymore? Yeah, there's somebody in the back. Some of us, this happened this morning. And there's multiple different times this can happen. Sometimes you try on a new shirt, and it doesn't fit quite right. Some of us, we, fit on, we put on our favorite shirt, and it's not really our favorite shirt anymore because we can't wear it because it would be embarrassing, right? One of my least favorite things that in the entire world is trying on clothes at the store. Does anyone else feel this way? I, it's me and a bunch of 14-year-old boys raising their hand. Um, I hate it. The reason I hate it is I know I'm going to look at a mannequin, I'm going to like the way it looks on the mannequin, and then I'm going to go in the dressing room, try it on, and it's not going to fit very well. Meanwhile, Dana's outside the door saying, hey, come show me, come show me, come show me. And I'm in here in this tight shirt like, I don't want to show you. I feel shame. And another thing I do is I don't look in the mirror. I don't want to see it because I can feel it. It feels too tight. It doesn't feel right. And I hate this whole experience. So I actually refuse to look in the mirror. And I, and I was talking to my sister-in-law, Lisa, and I was saying, you know, I hate looking in this mirror. I feel like they all make you look really fat. And she worked at Mark's, uh, you know, the, the department store. And she goes, well, Ryan, actually, those are designed to make you look skinnier. And I'm like, <laughs> not helping. Now, I know I'm speaking dramatically, but do you guys relate with this issue at all? I think a lot of us, we don't like the way we look, and we find out one of the easiest ways to deal with that, just don't look in the mirror. You can't hate what you don't see, right? Is this true um, as a church sometimes? Can this be true in our faith? Can this be true with sin? Sure. 
One other thing that's always bothered me is this passage in Galatians. Um, It's in Galatians chapter 2. You can follow along in your Bible if you want, but we're starting in verse 11. And this is about Paul opposing Peter. Do you guys remember this story? Um, If you want to read it, it's right there. But for the sake of time, basically, in Galatia, they're meeting at the church, and there's Gentiles and Jews eating together. Peter creates a big problem because he doesn't like the way that they're eating, and he doesn't like being there with the Gentiles. And him and some of the other Jews go to the side and say that we are going to separate ourselves from the group. Paul, who is also Hebrew, takes issue with this and openly rebukes Peter and says, I've seen you when you were with Gentiles act like this. Why are you doing this and making a stink right now? Obviously, I'm paraphrasing. The Greek says stink. But it's this funny story where Peter decides that he's going to make this scene, but he's not looking in the mirror. He doesn't understand Jesus came for the lost. So to silo yourself off with the righteous, it's a really bizarre situation. But I'm sure he felt some pressure, right? He felt some pressure from these other people who came from a similar heritage as him. Probably felt he should conform and act a certain way. Um, It's really interesting. Paul didn't feel that way. Paul was never really one to pull many punches, though. Paul always said exactly what he was thinking, which probably made him quite unpopular at parties. Have you ever met somebody who only speaks in cliches? Have you ever known somebody like this? Where every line that comes out of their mouth is just like a cliche saying? Miles, I don't know if you can relate to this because we grew up in Texas, but a lot of people would say stuff like this all the time where um, it was funny because when Dane and I lived in Estonia, we'd have these groups from Texas and Alabama come up from the south. We couldn't have them do anything. Because every time they would get up and preach or speak, they're speaking in so many idioms and euphemisms, it's totally untranslatable. Um, You know, when you're like, it's like a dog chases his tail. So we have this Russian translator. There's no way for them to like, well, okay, so you have a dog and he has a tail and he gets confused because he sees his tail and he runs. So it's a long translation. Do you get the point? Um, But sometimes we speak in cliches. Sometimes it's an easy way to get our point across But sometimes as Christians, we speak in cliches. There's sayings that we like to say to each other because, well, we'll get into that. But here's one saying that I've heard my whole life. God will not give you more than you can handle. Have you ever heard this? That's an interesting saying. I like that saying. Makes me feel good. It's also nice because it is from the Bible, right? It's coming from like when God is testing you, talking about in Hebrews, you know, he's got your back. He's not going to test you more than you can handle. But it's a nice saying. We'll say this to somebody sometimes if, like, maybe, um, like, I know I've talked to Abby before, and she's in school, and she has a lot of work. So maybe I would say, hey, God won't give you more than you can handle, and maybe you'll feel a little better, right? What about when God closes a door, he opens a window? Have you ever heard this? That sounds nice. It's not nice to have to climb out a window, but I get the point. That one's not as biblical necessarily, but it's not necessarily untrue, right? What about if God brings you to it, he'll bring you through it. Now, that one, 
is really good because it rhymes. So we should listen to it. They all sound nice. All of these bring us to a place of hope. Um, These are things that we would say to each other. If someone's going through a tough time, maybe we're suffering. You could say something like this to somebody and maybe it'll make it all better, right? If I've learned one thing in my life so far, life isn't simple. Church isn't simple. As much as I would love to say it's simple and easy and this is so um, simple just to figure out, it's not. Neither are people's life situations. Have you ever been in a situation of extreme suffering? Have you ever really suffered? Um, Recently, I've been picking on the Rippenhagen family, but I was talking with Dana Rippenhagen, and she made some really interesting points to me about suffering. Um, From her background and when she grew up, suffering is a lot different for her than it was for me growing up. For me, I was always told it was almost like a lack of faith if I was like, if I would wallow in my suffering, if I would mourn. Because like, how can I cry and be upset if I know that God has this, right? Isn't that a lack of faith? But her point is actually really, really beautiful, which is, no, um, by me mourning and me crying and me suffering, I'm honoring that person. I'm honoring that person's memory. And I also believe God is suffering with me for the loss of a child. And I find that really interesting. Especially if you consider in the Gospel of John, you guys remember the story of Lazarus? Lazarus who was raised from the dead? It's a really interesting story, right? Because we know that Jesus knows what's going to happen. We know that he has the power to change this situation, and we know that he knows he's going to do it. So what's there to be worried about? Because if I knew, and see, this is a huge difference between Jesus and I, mostly because I'm a really bad person. If I knew I was about to do something really great and everyone else didn't know, I would be milking it. I would be like, oh, man, Lazarus is really dead. Oh, that's hard. No one can beat death except for me, right? You'd milk that. Be like, look how great I am. Look how powerful I am. But what happens in that story? It's interesting. Does anybody remember Jesus knowing what he's about to do before he raises Lazarus, what does he do? I'll give you a hint. It's the shortest verse in the Bible. He wept. Isn't that interesting? Why would you weep about something that you have clarity on, that you have hope on, you know is about to be fixed, why would you weep? I think some of us, when we think about this, like we kind of understand that. We're Christians. We understand that when we lose somebody we love, we know that we have hope. We know where this is going. We know who our God is, but we still suffer. And if you read in the Bible, it seems that God feels a lot of these same things, that he has such great knowledge and foreknowledge, um, infinite knowledge, but he still hurts when we hurt. To go back, I think that we've all experienced some sort of situation. When I was in college, I had a good friend named Lindsay. 
Um, she, because we lived in Texas and we were going to school at Abilene Christian, one thing that a lot of the students would do is they'd go to the next town and there was a honky-tonk. I don't know if that translates to Canada well. But basically there was a gymnasium where a bunch of old people and college students would go and they would two-step dance. And it was this really fun thing and Lindsay loved to go and dance. And we were in this ministry together in college and one night she went out um, with her, some of her friends and they went dancing. And that night I decided not to go. I wanted to stay in and probably play video games or something. And she, uh, I get a call that said that they'd been in a car accident. And, and it was a big deal, right? Because this is on some country road um, about 20 miles away. Um, we go to the hospital because apparently it was quite serious. And all of these um, four kids that were in the car were in critical condition. As news started breaking, we knew one of them actually died. But the doctors couldn't, didn't want to confirm exactly who it was yet. So we waited for hours to figure out who died. Now, that's an awkward situation, right? Because everybody who's friends of these people, family of these people, they're coming to the hospital, and they're all suffering because they don't know what the future holds for them. They don't know what's going to happen. Um, and, it, and, it, and it puts you in a weird spot where you're really hoping it's not my friend, but you know that if it's not my friend, it's going to be somebody else's friend. Well, turns out it was my friend Lindsay who died in this car accident. And, and I was sad, and this was years ago, um, and so I hate to glaze over it, but I was really sad. And I was sitting in the hospital, I'm trying to make sense of it, asking the normal questions. Oh, God, why did this happen? Things that we always ask when we're suffering, right? And a good friend of mine came up to me and said, Ryan, don't be sad. This was God's plan. This was his purpose. He has this. Nothing in my life has ever made me feel worse than that. These cliches that we say, they're not inherently wrong in all circumstances. But they do come with problems. One of the problems is it comes with the assumption that we are intimately equated with God's specific will in this circumstance, right? That I have that knowledge that I can say that God caused that car accident. Now, it's not that I don't believe that God works in these situations, but that can be an incredibly painful thing to tell someone. And my question to all of you is, why do we say this? Why did this friend say this to me? Was he trying to hurt my feelings? Was he trying to damage my faith? course not. He was actually trying to make me feel better. His hope was that I would hear this and it would all make sense. My suffering would be relieved, um, but that wasn't, that, wasn't my circ- that wasn't my situation. That actually increased my suffering in that circumstance. Um, I think it's really important that as Christians, we take a look in the mirror. Sometimes it's scary to do this, but sometimes we need to go and look in the mirror and say, what are some of the things we say to people in our congregation, to people in the world, that, that help craft a narrative that we don't want? Um, one other thing that I notice is it's really easy today, and, and this happens at every church, and um, it even happens here sometimes, where it's really, really easy to criticize this youngest, younger generation, right? Because millennials and the generation below, they have cell phones and they're terrible because they, all they want to do is look at their cell phones and they're everything that's wrong with the church, right? 
And they're causing our suffering in the world. But we don't like to look in the mirror and say, well, somebody raised those kids. Meanwhile, every parent tenses up. And that's not to blame everybody because culture and society has a lot more to do with just parenting. There's a lot of things that go into it. But oftentimes, that's just kind of how the church goes, right? As one generation uh, moves on, these new generations come in and they're the big problem generation and they just keep moving on. Um, But I do want to act as an advocate today for some of these younger generations, for some of these people who are on the fringe. Because for those of us who grow up in the church and we've always felt that we're in the center of this community and we're accepted in this community, one thing that we have to recognize is there is a peripheral. And I'm not talking about the world. I'm talking about there is a ring around the church, around the community of people who you think are deep in the heart of the community, but they feel like outsiders. They don't, maybe it's because they don't quite buy in. Maybe they say, you know, I don't believe things exactly the way they believe things. Maybe it's because they're dealing with something that's very shameful to them or something that they know that if they share and they talk about, you will be ashamed of them. Oftentimes we feel that these people are just a part of the community and everything's fine, but there's a lot that we can do to push these people away without ever saying a word. Um, If you've ever met somebody who ever maybe uh, was in the church and they got pregnant uh, when they were 16 years old and they didn't know what to do, they'll always say the same thing. I feel judged when I'm here. Right? Um, It's very common. I had a good friend who this was their situation. I feel judged when I'm here. And you ask them, well, what, what did somebody say to you? Did somebody say, like, you're like, did somebody say something to you? No. Well, did, did somebody say hi to you when you came in? Yeah, some people said hi to me. So, so wh- why are you feeling judged? They go, I can't explain it, but every time I walk in here, I feel such a weight. And I think if we've ever known somebody like that, we understand this feeling of this weight that people can feel who aren't at the heart of the community. My point that I want to make this morning is those are people who belong in this community. Those are people who should be at the heart, and we have an obligation to help that avenue be um, a little easier. I'm going to read from 1 Peter chapter 3, 13 through 18. 1 Peter chapter 3, verses 13 through 18. Who is going to harm you if you're eager to do good? But even if you should suffer for what is right, you are blessed. Do not fear their threats. Do not be frightened. But in your hearts, revere Christ as Lord. Always be prepared to give an answer to everyone who asks you to give you a reason for the hope that you have. But do this with gentleness and respect. Remember that. Do this with gentleness and respect. Keeping a clear conscience so that those who speak maliciously against you and your good behavior in Christ may be ashamed of their slander. For it is better if it is God's will to suffer for doing good than doing evil. For Christ suffered once for sins, the righteous and for the unrighteous, to bring you to God. He was put to death, but his body made alive in spirit. Therefore, since Christ suffered in his body, arm yourselves with this same attitude, because he who has suffered in the body is done with sin, and as a result, he does not live the rest of their earthly life for their human desires, but rather the will of God. Um, are there any N.T. Wright fans here? I love N.T. Wright. Um, just a, 
He's an exceptional author and speaker. Just has seems to have invaluable insights. He argues um, that oftentimes we make these arguments for Christ. Maybe the natural argument: Oh, look at the world, look at the stars. How can there not be a God? But he he argues that most of these arguments are really bad um, because they always end with the atheist agnostic argument, which is, it's compound, but basically, why do bad things happen to good people? And also, how can there be a God with all of this suffering in the world? And if there is a God, he's certainly not a good God. Have you ever heard this argument? And he says that most of the arguments that we approach this from, it's like walking out on a frozen lake. But the ice is very, very thin. I can start that argument with you and say, hey, look at this. Look at this big world. Look at the mountains. Look at everything. God is real. And for a moment, you might have a shared experience with me. But the further you go out on that lake, you realize this is a tough sell. And this is going to be a very challenging argument. Usually when somebody is skeptical or doubtful of that, we usually say things like, hey, you're not seeing the bigger picture. We do. We know God. We see the bigger picture. Trust us. Does that usually work? Not always. There was a time where it did. Sometimes we'll say, well, there's a silver lining around things. Don't worry. But what I'm arguing and what N.T. Wright argues is what we should say is, Yes, there's suffering in the world. There's suffering in this church. There's suffering in our families, and there's suffering in my life. But we serve the God who suffered. He knows our suffering, and he bore it. And the suffering is just a product of our will. He argues that every argument for God needs to begin at the cross. As Kelly said in the last couple of weeks, when we talk about Christ, there's no science that we can prove him. And some people might disagree. I've been a missionary. I've never found something that just is a really easy, quick fix to evangelizing to somebody. But we do, everybody can relate to the cross. We all relate to suffering. And that takes faith to believe that story. Sometimes we believe that we suffer as a byproduct of Adam and Eve, right? Adam and Eve sinned, so now I suffer, right? Um, Or maybe Adam and Eve sinned, and so like that's why we sin, right? But suffering is a little different than sin. It's so interesting. When you read the story of Adam and Eve, they didn't start suffering until they obtained what? Yeah, until they obtained the knowledge of good and evil. The second that they knew what was good and bad, what they had and what they didn't, all of a sudden, they were suffering. And then God punished them, and we know the story. But sometimes, life would be easier if we didn't know what was good and bad, and we didn't know anything. Like, there's no reason to suffer. But we do. We know what we have a hope in. We know when life is bad. We know when life is hard. Um, And I'm not talking about pain. You touch a stove, ow, that hurts. I'm talking about real suffering. Abraham experienced this. Would you agree Abraham experienced some suffering? As God 
told him to sacrifice his son. He walked him all the way to the mountain. He took his son, raised the knife, and God said, no, you don't have to sacrifice your son. Basically, God was saying, is this is suffering I don't desire for you. This is suffering that I'm going to bear. I'm going to suffer for you. Isn't that interesting that we serve a God who suffers, a God who sent his son at the cross? Our suffering is made right at the cross. Our suffering is reconciled there. In Hebrews chapter 12, the writer says, Therefore, since we are surrounded by a great cloud of witnesses, let us throw off everything that hinders and the sin that so easily entangles, and let us run with perseverance the race that was marked out for us, fixing our eyes on Jesus, the pioneer and persecutor, sorry, the pioneer and perfecter of faith, For the joy set before him, he endured at the cross, scorning its shame, and sat down at the right hand of the throne of God. Consider him who endured such opposition for sinners, so that you will not grow weary and lose heart in your struggle against sin. You have not yet resisted to the point of shedding your blood. This is going to be the part of the lesson that's critical. And when I say critical, I don't mean important. I mean critical, like I'm going to be critical of us and myself um, in the church. We serve a God who humbled himself. We serve a God who died, not just for you and for me, but for everybody. A God who loves all of his children and wants them to find redemption. That's who we serve. And that's at the center of what we believe. It's not enough to just accept this gift into our life. But Christ empowers us to go out and live like he did for other people. We are supposed to live lives of sacrifice for others. It's funny, in the Bible, most of the people who followed him understood, and Jesus told them, those who follow me might die. Sometimes we think following Christ is supposed to be easy and we sit here and we cash in our Sunday morning tokens. That's not how it works. We are called to die for others. We're called to live a life of sacrifice the same way that Christ did. One of my favorite passages in the Bible comes from Philippians chapter 2. I think most of us know this. Starting in verse 5, it says, In your relationships with one another, have the same mindset as Christ Jesus, who being in the very nature of God, did not consider equality with God something to be grasped. Rather, he made himself a servant, being made in human likeness. And being found in appearance as a man, he humbled himself and became obedient to what? To death. Even death on a cross. And therefore God exalted him in the highest place, gave him the name that is above every name, and that is the name of Jesus that every knee should bow. Every tongue acknowledge that Jesus Christ is Lord to the glory of God our Father. So this is the end. What does this mean for us? What does this mean for us as a church here? What does this mean for us as Christians globally? Sometimes we act afraid of those who are stuck in sin. This is a hard moment to look in the mirror. And I say this as somebody who 
I have my fair share of guilt in this. It, it, it's hard sometimes to accept somebody who is living in sin or they are um, living their life in a way that I'm uncomfortable with. Sometimes we don't want those people at church. Or sometimes we want them at church, but we want them on the outside. We want them to sit and to listen and to correct themselves. But the problem with this is the cross is at the center of the church. And that's where the sinner belongs. Sometimes we're unwilling to move an inch for a sinner, yet Jesus Christ allowed them to nail him to a wooden cross. Sometimes in the church we talk about other religions and other groups and all the suffering and pain that they've caused, but it's important that we recognize that Christianity has caused suffering on a global scale. And this isn't so that all of us feel guilty and we all take accountability right now and say, okay, we're all terrible people. But that's an important part of our narrative, and that's how the world views us. And we can wish that that wasn't true and say that it's not true, but it is. And so any conversation you have with somebody who has a negative view of the church, there is a reason. Sometimes we'll mock and scorn younger generations Will and maybe even the world for their way of looking at justice. But sometimes we, just don't, we don't even take accountability for our own narrative. Sometimes we make the cross a place that is only for people who are stained in the same places that we are. You can come here if you have my problems. Because we all struggle with distraction. Maybe a lot of us struggle with lying. A lot of us struggle with greed. But if you struggle with this, this is not the place for you. Have you ever found this to be true in the Christian world? I think this is a really hard look in the mirror, but unfortunately this is true in Christianity at times. It's like anything. It's not a binary. It's not always true. And it's not true with every single person. And it's not true with every single church. But it is something that we have to recognize and something that we need to correct. I hear all the time that there is this narrative about the church and we're under attack, right? We're, attacked by, we're under attack by the government. We're under attack. And a lot of that can be true, right? I think that is true. But we can do things that can help change that perception. The way of Christ and the way of the church begins and ends at the cross at the feet of Jesus. His way is a way of love, sacrifice, and suffering. We are image bearers. We are people who take on the image of Christ, the image of God, how we were made. It is our role, our vocation, to imitate Christ and bear hardship for others. That's the hard part. Because I look around this room, I can bear hardship for any one of you. That's easier because I know you. And we believe most of the same things, right? But are you willing to bear hardship for the other children who have not come to the cross? There is suffering, pain, and terrible horrors in the world. We talked about some of these today. There's shootings. There's senseless acts of violence. But God's church is the light on the hill city on a hill, a light and a refuge for the weak. The church is a place for all those who are broken and lost to come. We should always seek to speak truth 
at all times. But we must speak truth with gentleness and respect. We have to understand who we're speaking to. We have to understand what they've been through. Some of the people who walk through this door have been through trauma. Some people have felt trauma in regards to the church. It's very easy to tell somebody exactly what you believe about their sin. It's hard to do it with gentleness. Would you agree? I always talk to my wife about that. Man, I have a lot of the right answers. I believe that. But it's really hard to share that in a way that is respectful of the people you're talking to. The church is a place for those who are broken. It's a place for the depressed. It's a place for the anxious. It's here for the sinful and the lost, the righteous, the confused, those who are uncertain or maybe misidentified, the meek, the strong, the weak. This is a place for everybody who suffers, of which we all do. We are these people Um, We have found redemption and grace here at the cross. If we open up our arms and suffer for the people around us, just as Christ did, think about how many people will come here, find the cross, and find redemption here. The church was established for the world. Sometimes we get that confused, right? The church was established for God's select No, the church was established for the world that Jesus died for. Let's always be a church that opens our door to all people. We must learn to no longer fear sin and death because we're already sitting in God's arms. Amen? Let's pray. Our Heavenly Father, we thank you so much for this day. We thank you for your church. We're thankful that we're able to find refuge here. Um, We suffer. We suffer from loss. We suffer from our own sin. We suffer because we, we don't know who we are sometimes. But you have given us a purpose. You have given us redemption, and you've given us grace. And for that, we will never be able to repay you, but we will work to bear your son's image and sacrifice for others. Bring them to your cross so that they can find redemption and find the truth. Thank you for this church. Thank you for this day. In your wonderful name we pray. Amen.